Okay, good morning everyone. Good to see all of you here today. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear loving Heavenly Father, as we come before you today, we thank you that you've taken us thus far through the whole book of Thessalonians as we come to the last section. We just pray that you will help us to really concentrate our minds, to listen to these concluding words, because truly it tells us how we should live before you as your people. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. How should we behave as a church? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Um, how should we behave as a church? Are there a sort of rules that we should be following? And where should we get those rules from? Because I think uh, many people have different ideas of what it means to behave as a church. Is a church like a cinema? You know, you come in, you watch a show, and then you leave. Or is a church like an army? Where, you know, the pastor is like the commanding general and you all just listen to what I say? Is a church like a democracy where, you know, everybody has a vote and then you, you know, organize yourself into different factions? Or is a church like a family where there's a hierarchy and the children just listen to the parents? Well, I think it's a very important topic and it's a topic in which all of us, we need to understand and be very clear about how we need to behave as a church in church. Now today, I think as we look at this passage, it tells us a lot about how we should behave in terms of the relationship between leaders and members, members and leaders, members to one another, and the members of the church to God. Now over the last few weeks, we've been told with 100% certainty that Jesus is going to return again. So in chapter 4, uh, verse 13 to 15, which was just the previous section which is up here, Paul had said, brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep with him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. So we began in chapter 4 by focusing on the eternal truth of the death and resurrection of Jesus and how that assures us that each and every one of us in Christ will also rise again and be united with Jesus for eternity. And it was such an important topic that Paul actually spent two sections on it and we looked at it in the last two sections, in the last two Sundays. And each section ends with the exhortation that we were to encourage one another with these words, with the truth of Jesus returning again. So the next section, remember he wrote at the end of the first section, in chapter 4 verse 18, Therefore, encourage each other with these words. And then the week before last, in chapter 5 verse 11, it says, Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. So therefore, as we come to this section, in verse 12 to the very end of the chapter, it links back to what was being said right earlier on, and we can never forget that. That everything that we read from verse 12 onwards is linked with the return of Jesus and the expectation that we be united with Him. And it's really interesting because when you look at verse 12 to 28, these are not suggestions, right? These are not like sort of helpful recommendations for church life, but we must be very clear that these are rules and regulations, these are demands and commandments of what it means to become a member of Christ's church. So I know for myself, I really like going swimming. And my favorite swimming place is the OCBC Aquatic Center, the sports hub. 
Right? I like swimming where, uh, you know, Joseph Schooling and Kwa Tien won all their medals. And I also like it because the pool is really cold. You know, they, they actually artificially cool the, the pool to 23 degrees. So it doesn't matter how hot it is outside, you still have a really good swim. But it's also one of the strictest swimming pools in Singapore. There are rules everywhere. You can't bring your bag or your towel to the swimming area. They will ask you to leave the swimming pool. And I think that's what our attitude should be when we come to verse 12 and 28. These are not optional extras for the Christian life. These are the rules and regulations which God tells us that we need to listen to if we are going to function as His church. And I think the context very much is because over the last two sections, we've learned that they were meant to encourage one another. The church was meant to encourage one another with the return of Jesus Christ. But the problem is that we can encourage one another with our words, but in our actions as a church, we can discourage one another in the way that we act towards one another. And I think this is why these rules and commandments are so strong. Because if we do not behave as a church and all the encouragement we give to each other about the return of Jesus will fall on ears which cannot hear. So in verse 12, he begins, Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard and love, because of their work, live in peace with each other. So it begins with the relationship between the church and its leaders. And the first thing it says is it speaks to uh, those who are the leaders. And the leaders, it says here, are those who work hard among you, who work hard among the members of the church. And the idea of working hard here is laboring until you are weary, right? And I think that this is a, is a, it's a very important point that actually the leaders of the church are those who labor and labor and work hard among the church members. But unfortunately, that's not always true, is it? Uh, we do see leaders who maybe do not labor hard but only want the title. And what's really interesting is if you look at this passage, the way that Paul in the Bible phrases it is he doesn't say acknowledge those who are elders, deacons and pastors among you. But it says, acknowledge those who work hard among you. So what is really important is not the title, but rather the role that, that the person functions in. I remember um, I, I heard this quite, it's funny, but quite a depressing story at the same time of how one of my theological lecturers in theological college says that there are some pastors, uh, I'm, I'm no, I'm no doubt this happens also in Singapore, who only spend like five to, to six or seven years in each parish, and then they change. And the reason why they change is because they've only got five or six years worth of sermons, you see. So, you know, every time they finish their sermons that they finish, they go to a new parish and they can start preaching from what they had before. So they just keep preaching the same series of sermons that they prepared for five or six years. But here, as we look in this passage, it doesn't say that, right? It says that those leaders must be those who work hard among you. And what are they working hard to do? It says that they care for you in the Lord. They care for you in the Lord. Now actually, in the earlier NIV version, it says those who are over you, right, care for you, over you in the Lord. Which means that whatever the leader does, the leader is doing as 
a representative of Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He or she is not leading because of personal glory or personal gain or self-interest or to lord it over people for power, but rather they are to serve as an under-shepherd of Jesus Christ himself. And the objective must be for the spiritual good of people. Because they are serving in the Lord, they must do everything for the purpose of raising people up and building people up in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the interesting thing that we see here is that these people in the book of Thessalonians were to admonish you. Now this word admonish is quite an interesting word, isn't it? It's the idea of the word of correction or warning or or rebuke or reprimand. Now obviously it doesn't mean that uh, the person is uh, uh, rebukes in, in, a, in a harsh or a rude way, because that's not the way that's meant to be done, and that's not the gentleness that Jesus showed us. But it does show us that actually part of leadership, a very big part of spiritual leadership, is to, to reprimand, to correct, to rebuke, and to warn people. Now, in the Thessalonian church, obviously, it seemed as if that the leaders were to admonish people uh, based on the things that the Apostle Paul had been admonishing the congregation about. That there were people idle in the church. There were people who were committing sexual morality and there were people perhaps who were being gossipers and busybodies. See, one of the shocking things that we see today is, I think, a failure to admonish among leaders of the church. Because in the world that we live in, we live in a world where we are told to tolerate everything. But I think that, biblically speaking, if a person is a leader in the Lord, it must mean that if we see people who are doing things in an ungodly way, they're living in an ungodly way, or they are believing ungodly things, then the, the role of the leader must be to admonish and to warn and to correct the person. Because that was what Jesus Christ would want them to do. That's why it's so sad when I've actually heard instances of people in other churches where they, 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 they know of people who are committing sexual sin. Uh, I've heard of cases where people have been committing adultery and the pastor does not admonish. Or I've heard of cases where there are church leaders who somehow or other have been found out to be watching hardcore pornography and again, the pastor has not admonished. And usually the reason why we don't want to admonish is because we don't want to have conflict. We don't want to offend people. We don't want people to be unhappy with us. But if we are leaders in the Lord, it must mean that we must do what Jesus would want us to do, and that would be to correct and warn and rebuke that person. Now obviously this per- these people, the leaders, if they were to be working hard among them and caring for them in the Lord... It must mean that they are leaders in a different way. You see, what makes a good secular leader may not be what makes a good spiritual leader in the Lord. So obviously you think of uh, uh, you know, some people who are good secular leaders, like maybe, I don't know, Steve Jobs, right? or even, I don't know if you agree, Donald Trump. right? But in a sense, that what makes them good leaders is that they actually use people to get them to serve the organization as effectively as possible. Right? So 
Steve Jobs, I mean, if you read some of the things that he's done or said or whatever, was a good leader, but he, he basically used people to build up Apple. And I'm sure Donald Trump does the same thing to build up his Trump organization or whatever. But leaders in the, in the Lord cannot use members of the church just to build up the church organization. The leaders in the Lord must be there to care for the church members to build them up individually in the Lord. And I remember once before when I was um, uh, serving in MTS like uh, Nick was, and I asked one of the pastors who was in charge, and said, you know what's the difference between working in the church and working at McDonald's? And he said, well, you know, at McDonald's, basically, they're only interested in what, what is good for McDonald's. But if we are in the church, we're interested in what, not, what is not just good for the church, but what's good for the individual as well in the Lord. And I think this is what was happening here. Paul was asking the leaders to do all these things, to work hard, to care for the people in the Lord, and who were admonishing them. But at the same time, if you look in verse 13, there was a problem because in the church, the people didn't seem to be respecting or loving their leaders. Now in verse 13, it says that hold them, hold the leaders in the highest regard and love because of their work and live in peace with each other. So what seemed to be happening here was that uh, the leaders were trying to do their job in caring for the people and leading them and admonishing them. But the people were finding it hard to accept the leadership of their leaders. It may have been that, you know, it's a very human tendency that when the leaders were telling them not to be idle, they were not very happy about it. Maybe when the leaders were telling them not to be sexually impure, again, they were not all that you know, pleased about it. Or maybe when the, the leaders told them not to be busy bodies, they told the leaders not to be busy bodies themselves. But I think that that is the, the, a problem in the church, isn't it? Because if the members of the church don't allow the leaders to do their work effectively, then who suffers? It is the people, isn't it? Because the people are not actually being instructed and not actually being changed to become more and more godly before Jesus Christ. Again, this can be a, a real situation even today. Um, I remember Joshua Ng, who's going to be preaching to us uh, at the end of the year at the church camp. He used to tell me about how there's some Chinese churches in, uh, in Sydney, in Australia. And these Chinese churches were were very, very powerful. There are some very powerful individuals. And he said how sometimes, you know, if you're a pastor there and you go and preach there, you're very careful about what you say. Because if you say the wrong thing and the and the and the you offend the wrong people and the, the powerful people in the Chinese church, you may not have a job at the end of the year. But I see I think that's that's a that's a problem, isn't it, where people are not willing to love and respect the leader who's who's doing their work responsibly but instead are actually getting offended and are treating the leaders of contempt because of what they are honestly trying to do among them. But let us not be like that because God's word says that as members, if the leaders are, are doing their work honestly and are not abusing their power and are caring for you and admonishing you out of love for you, then you are to respect them, love them and live in peace with them. 
Now in verse 14 to 15, it speaks not from the relationship between the leaders and the members, but between members and members. It says in verse 14, And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient of everyone, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Now, if you look at this passage, you see that the the word there in verse 14, brothers and sisters, we urge you to warn those who are idle and disruptive. That word warn, if you look in your Bibles, is actually the exact same word as the word used in the previous verse, which is admonish. That means that it is not just the role of the leader who is to admonish or to warn or to uh, constructively um, rebuke people in the church who are doing the wrong thing, but everyone, in a plural sense, not a singular sense, must, must warn and admonish each other. Now, Obviously, that doesn't mean that, you know, we, we do so in a very public way. We're not here to, like, you know, call out people and say, hey, you know, publicly, you know, in front of the whole church or your Bible study, you know, tell someone, say, you know, what you did that day was really wrong, you know. I mean, obviously, it comes with some sensitivity and some gentleness. But I think that what it actually shows is each and every one of us here, not just a leader, right? It's not, you know, not just me or, or Nick or, or why. Every one of us here has a responsibility to each other. It means that if you see your brother and sister sinning in some way or believing in the Bible in in some wrong way, then you can't do what the rest of the world says, you know, ah, you know, don't get involved, right? You know, you actually have to get involved and and pull your brother and sister aside and say, oh, you know, look, there's something wrong here. You, You need to change in this way. But I think so many times in so many churches, I've seen in my own eyes where people see things which are wrong, but they, you know, we do the Singaporean thing, right? Ah, yeah, don't, don't get involved. I remember my mom used to tell me the same thing, you know, like, we see an accident, and I'll be going over there and saying, hey, hey don't catch out, don't catch out, right? Hey, you know, why, why you get involved in other people's business? But, but, as Christians, it says very clearly, this is a command, okay? This is not a suggestion. We are meant to admonish those, or warn those, who are doing the wrong thing. And obviously in the 1 Thessalonians case, there were people who are idle and disruptive, being busybody. But maybe the rest of the church was just tolerating it. And they weren't actually saying, hey, you know, look, maybe you should go and do something about it. Maybe you shouldn't get involved in this and gossip about it. Maybe you should go and work or do something. Now at the same time, while we are meant to admonish and warn other people, privately and gently, It doesn't say that, oh, well, you know, all our job is to go around telling people what they're doing wrong. Because it goes on to say, encourage the disheartened and help the weak. Now, what it means here is the the, the disheartened and the weak could be people who were really struggling. And remember in the Thessalonian case, they were facing lots and lots of persecution, both from the Jews and the Gentiles. So there were people there who would be disheartened, maybe 
these were the people who lost their jobs, or these were the people who lost their their houses, or, or these were the people who had faced opposition from family members. And it says that these were the people who we should encourage, and these are the people who we should help. The idea of being helpful here is, is the word that's actually being used where, you know someone sprains their ankle? If you've ever been on a sporting field or something, you know what I mean. Like someone sprains their ankle playing soccer or something and you, you get beside them and they put their shoulder and their arm over you. You sort of, you, you help carry them off the field. It's the same, the same picture is being used here, right? When you see someone who's weak, when you see someone who is disheartened, you're meant to like help them, give them a helping hand, right? Put, allow them to put their weight on you so that you can help carry their weight. Now, I think this is very important, isn't it? Because sometimes people just do a lot of admonishing, you know, like, why are you so uh, so weak all the time? You know, like, come on, man, buck up, right? But when we see people who are disheartened, people who are weak, people who are struggling in their faith for some reason or another, right? maybe they're facing hard times, maybe there's illness, maybe there's persecution, what we are meant to do, what God's command tells us to do, is not to go out there and admonish them and say, hey, don't be so weak. Lah. It's to actually give them a helping hand so that they can lean their weight on you and you can help support them as they struggle in their own faith or they struggle or are discouraged in some way. Now it goes on to say, in verse 15, right? Oh, sorry, the end of verse 14. Be patient of everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong. But always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Now, <clears throat> I think the picture here that we see in these last few commands in this particular verse is that the church must be a place where there is forgiveness, patience, it's a place where we are to continue to be long-suffering with each other. You know, I think one of the problems is some people treat the church like the road. Okay, because you know when you drive on the road, there's a lot of road rage happening in Singapore, right? Uh, you know, it's like people always want to, to, to um, give you back what you gave them. Even if you don't actually, I, I, you know, actually mean it. I, I think I'm a pretty gentle driver, right? Uh, but there are times where you know you accidentally cut into someone's lane because you just didn't see them, or you you know you're slowing down because you're a bit lost in your GPS and your phone is not very good. Then you have these strange people who then purposely come in front of you to slow down in front of you, like, hey, I didn't even mean to do that to you. Right now you're doing that to me. But the church is not meant to be like that, isn't it? The church is not a place where we're meant to uh, insult each other based on our own perceived insult that we've received. But there's some people who at church who, again, do not hold on to the commandments of God, who can really hold on to grudges for years and years and years. I, I have people telling me, uh, not here in church, but other churches, where there are people who, for some long forgotten decades old grudge, uh, have, have never said hello to them in church ever again. Right? Because of something that someone said in some Bible study or something years and years ago, uh, people don't say hello to one another. But is that the way that we are meant to treat each other in church? See, read carefully what the command says. Right? Be patient with 
everyone, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. So I wonder if you reflect on yourself, whether you are behaving uh, like that, you know, whether you're willing to move on and forgive and be patient and long-suffering, or whether you just hold on to grudges. See, actually, I find this version not very um, helpful because, you know, it just says, do what is good for each other, right? But I think the idea is more of the earlier version, which was the idea of kindness, right? Be kind to one another. Is that what characterizes you as a Christian? Are you a kind person to people at church and to everyone else? See, if you look up here on the slide, okay, you probably think, well, today, how come so few slides, right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> But the idea of kindness is actually a, a, a characteristic of the Christian together with love, isn't it? Right? So be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience, bear with each other. And forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And again, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So I wonder, are you kind to people at church? Is that what characterizes your relationship with other people at church? Are you a kind person? Because that's the way that God commands you. Those are the rules and regulations of how we have to behave at church. Now the next section, interestingly enough, I, I, I try to understand in terms of sections, right? I think really if you could characterize the next section from verse 16 onwards, talks about how we relate not to each other but in our relationship to God. Okay? So the first section talks about our attitude, I think, to God. Rejoice always. Right? Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. So I think if you wanted to divide this section up, the, the first one is really our attitude to God. And here it begins in verse 16 by saying, Rejoice always, be always joyful. Now, this must have been really hard for the Thessalonian Christians to accept because they were being persecuted by the Jews and their own people. They were being admonished by uh, their leaders for being idle. They were asked to do various things which may have been very difficult to forgive one another. But the human attitude of grumbling against God and saying, ah, yeah, okay, God tells me to do this, I'll just do it anyway, right? God tells me to forgive. Ah, yeah, I must forgive. Okay, I'll forgive. But it says here that we must do all these things. Persevere under persecution. Persevere under hardship. Do the difficult things of forgiveness and being kind, but still be Rejoicing always. Now how can we be joyful in difficult times? I mean, what is there to rejoice in? 
when times are tough? Well, I think we relate this back to what we've read in chapter 4 and 5. It must be that we can still rejoice because we know of how God has called us to be His people. How there is a certainty of heaven and eternal life. How there's a certainty of being united with Jesus forever and ever. See, I think part of the problem is, if, if, if you can think carefully, you remember we sang that song that we sang, I think it's the second song that we sang. It was very helpful because our tendency is we think that we love God only on the in the good times. But then when the times are bad, we, we doubt God. But actually here it says that we must rejoice always because the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the resurrection of ourselves and the, 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 the being united with Jesus in heaven are objective things that we can always rejoice in. And I think that's why it says in verse um, 18, right? Give thanks in all circumstances for it is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Now, I want you to read very carefully. It doesn't say give thanks for all circumstances. That means, you know, I, well, I'm really sick. I give thanks for my sickness. I got knocked down by a car. I give thanks for the car that knocked, down, knocked me down. No, it doesn't say that. It says give thanks in all circumstances. That means even in the circumstances which we find ourselves in that are difficult, that cause us great pain and frustration, we can still give thanks for those because there will always be things we can give thanks for. The eternal things, the things which God has done, who has chosen us and called us into our faith and has promised us a certain salvation. We can still give thanks for that even when we lose the temporal things. It goes on to say, so the first one is our attitude to God and the second thing is actually talking to God. Right? We must continue to talk to God. It says here we must, in verse 17, pray continually. Pray continually. Right, it's only two words. It must be one of the shortest verses in, in the Bible. Right? Pray continually. Now, isn't it interesting? Because sometimes, you know, as Christians, we, we do everything and we say, oh, well, we've done everything we can now. All we can do now is pray. Right? Do we, you know, sometimes we say that, right? We've done everything. All we can do now is pray. Now actually this passage says that prayer is not the last resort, but rather prayer is the first resort. We should pray continually. It doesn't mean like we know we're continually praying, but it must have an attitude of continually relying on God in prayer. Because it recognizes that God is the one who is in control of our lives. That we are not in control of our lives. That God is the one who orders our path. But I think what we pray about is also very important, isn't it? Because in verse 23, Paul himself tells the Thessalonian Christians of what he is praying for them. And this must be something that must be very important to pray for. So verse 23 says, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. So what does Paul pray for the Thessalonian Christians? That they will be sanctified. 
that they'll be set apart for God and they'll be holy and blameless till Jesus comes. So we might pray continually, but what do we pray about continually? Do we pray about the things that really matter? Or we might pray about all sorts of things, but what really matters is the end is to be sanctified and blameless and holy till Jesus comes. Is that something that you pray about? Do you pray continually, regularly, or even once in a while that you will be sanctified, blameless, holy till Jesus comes? Because that must be one of the most important prayers, isn't it? Because the whole reason for this section is because we are waiting for Jesus to come, to be united with him, to go to heaven. Now, in the middle of all this, there's a strange, strange section in verse 19 which says, Do not quench the spirit, or do not like, you know, pour cold water on the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good and reject every kind of evil. Now, as we heard from um, uh, Andrew Reed last week, I think he gave a very good uh, um, definition of prophecy, right? So do you all remember what he said? What do you all do you remember what he said? You all can't remember. I must, I must, we must invite him back. I mean, he came all the way from Australia just to tell us that and you can't remember what he said. I think he said, okay, I wrote it down so I must remember. He said, prophecy is speaking God's word to God's people, right? Okay? Speaking God's word to God's people. And I think within the context of what we're reading here in Thessalonians, the speaking of God's word to God's people uh, must have been the application of what we are reading here today in the lives of the Thessalonian Christians. So the, 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 the people, the leaders in particular, maybe some of the church members, were telling these people who are idle, who are busybodies, who are sexually immoral, that they shouldn't do these things. They were applying the lessons that they learned from the Apostle Paul's teaching into the lives of the church members. They were speaking God's word to God's people, but instead of receiving this prophecy, they were being treated with contempt. Uh, the Holy Spirit was not being heated, but rather cold water was being poured on the Holy Spirit. But Paul says here very clearly, and God's word says, do not quench the spirit, do not treat prophecies with contempt. And within this context, I think he's saying to them, look, heed the warnings, the prophecies being made about you, right? When people say, look, you need to go to work, don't be a busybody, be pure in your sexual attitude. These are prophecies which are being treated with contempt, but you need to listen to these things. But at the same time, Paul recognizes that it's not good just to receive every prophecy like willy-nilly, blindly. Because in verse 21, he says, But test them all. Hold on to what is good and reject every kind of evil. You see, at the same time, it means that when someone says something to you and says, This is what God is saying for me to tell you, it must be tested by what the Bible says. I mean, obviously, if someone comes up to you and says, I have a prophecy from God, God told me that you are to give me a million dollars, then something's not right there, right? The Bible must be used to test all prophecy. Obviously, in the Thessalonian times, it would have been very different because they would have tested the prophecy based on the apostle teaching in the Old Testament. But for us, we've got the Bible, and we need to test 
every prophecy that we hear based on what God's word says. And we must, as it says there, hold on to the good, but reject every kind of evil or false prophecy. So we put this together in every way, in the way that the church treats its leaders and leaders treat the church, in the way that the members treat one another, in the way that the members listen to God and speak to God and their attitude to God. There must be the right way of doing things, a commandment, a rule, a regulation. So I began by asking the question, how do you define the church? What is the church? Well, I think if we read verse 12 to the end of the chapter and we bring it back to what we've read in chapter 4 and 5, really, the definition of the church is God's people helping one another wait for Jesus' return, isn't it? See, we are here together corporately as a people helping one another to wait for Jesus' return. See, this is not a cinema, right? I mean, we don't come here, we watch a movie or, you know, something less entertaining, which is the pastor speaking, right? And then we all go home. Neither is the church like a gym, you know, you just sign up for a gym membership for like, you know, maybe a two-year term and then you find another gym. And neither is the church, you know, like a company where we're all here to serve, you know, the brand name of BTPC. But rather, we are all here to help each other wait effectively and persevere for Jesus' return. And that means that we all have a role to play. We all have a role to admonish one another when we see each other going off the rails or doing the wrong thing or not living in a blameless way. We all have a role to play to encourage one another and to help give a shoulder to one another when we are weak or struggling. Uh, We all have a role to play to be gentle and kind and long-suffering and patient with one another. We all have a role to pray, to, to play, to, to help one another pray for one another, to speak to God and to listen to God together with one another. So as we've learned all the way through, these are not suggestions, these are commandments from God. We belong to God's church, to the church of Jesus Christ. This doesn't belong to us. And if we want to belong to the church of Christ, then we must follow uh, the rules that God has instituted. And if we do, then like it says there right at the very end, right? The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. If we do all these things, we pray to God and we follow these rules, then truly we will be able to wait blamelessly till Jesus returns. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear loving Heavenly Father, as we come before you today, help us to shed our individualism, the individualism of our world, and rather see that we are all part of your church. And as part of your church, we each have a role to play, to help one another, to persevere, to be blameless, to be sanctified till Jesus comes. Help us to encourage one another to wait patiently for the return of Jesus. And help us together to admonish one another gently, to encourage and to help one another when we are weak, to listen to your word effectively, to discard what is evil and to keep what is good, to continue to admonish one another if necessary, to 
have a good interaction between the leaders and the members so that in every way, each and every one of us here, all of us, will continue to walk strong in our faith in Jesus Christ. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.